about uh, an event that Brattleboro Solidarity had, Voices of Working People on May Day. And we're going to be hearing uh, two different clips from that day. And also later in the show, we're going to be talking about the Diversity Day that happened on Friday, May 4th. And we're going to hear from Janaki Natarajan, Michaela Sims, who's the diversity coordinator of the district, as well as Robin Morgan, a community member and someone who was uh, really instrumental in organizing these festivities. Great. So um, let's get started with a song. How about that? That sounds great. Um, so all our songs today are by Taina Asili y La Banda Rebelde because she um, came to Brattleboro Union High School last Friday, um, May 4th, for Diversity Day. And she's also an incredible artist that I've worked with. And I worked with her partner, um, uh, Gaetano Vaccaro, who is an amazing guitarist. And um she is an incredible activist as well, um, and that's one of the reasons why we invited her. And so we're going to kick off um, the show with the song No Es Mi Presidente. Lo rechazamos y no le tememos 
Welcome back. You're listening to WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Today on the show, we are discussing um, or we're playing clips from Brattleboro Solidarity's event, Voices of Working People, that was on May Day. That's International Workers' Day. And later on in the show, we're going to be talking about the WSDSU Diversity Day festivities. So um, Brattleboro Solidarity organized um, Voices of Working People's History um, for May Day, May 1st. And Becca, could you, you did such a great job at the event talking about um, the origins of May Day. Could you tell us? our listeners a little bit about the history? Sure. Well, it's really interesting because um, May Day, International Workers' Day, actually started out in the U.S. And I, I don't know the exact year off the top of my head, but it was the late 1800s. And what's fascinating to me is that people that I've talked to from all around the world have this day off mm-hmm. as a day to represent right. workers and the wor- and the labor that they um, put into making society, building society. And this is not a holiday anymore in the U S it's actually shifted to, uh, what we know now as labor day, which often represents the bosses Mm -hmm. and not the actual people. Consumerism. Yeah. But what's interesting is on May day, there were, um, Obviously, many countries had the day off, but there were protests um, and strikes all around the world in Puerto Rico um, in regards to sort of the promesa and, and the whole thing going on with them, with their debt, as well as in France and all over the world. They were really out there. Yeah. And here it was nothing. And most people don't know much about it. So, yeah, it's an interesting contradiction there. Yeah. Um, so we came together and we brought together a, a a group of people to read from um, Howard Zinn's Voices of People's History of the United States. And we called it the Voices of Working People's History. Um, and we had um, a number of readers. And so we're going to play one reader, Dottie Morris, um, read Angela Davis. And um, Dottie Morris is um, the works with equity and diversity at Keene State college and here is Dottie. Appeals to humans to men excuse me in spite of the appeals of man's inherent resistance there has seldom been agreement on how to relate in practice to unjust immoral laws and oppressive social order from which they emulate. The conservative uh, who does not dispute the validity of revolutions deeply rooted in our history, invokes visions of impending anarchy in order to legitimize his demand for absolute obedience. Law and order, with the major emphasis on order, is his watchword. The liberal articulates his sensitivity to certain societies' intolerable details, but will almost never prescribe methods of resistance that exceeds legality. In the heat of our pursuit of fundamental human rights, black people have continually been cautioned cautioned to be patient. We're advised that as long as we remain faithful to the existing democratic order, the glorious moment will eventually arrive when we will come into our own as full-fledged humans. But having been taught by bitter experience we know that there is a a glaring incongruence 
between democracy and the capitalist economy, which is the source of our ills. Regardless of all the rhetoric to the contrary, the people are not the unique matrix of the laws and the system which govern them. Certainly not black people and other nationally oppressed people, but not even the masses of whites. The people do not exercise divisive control over the determining factors of their life. Our survival has frequently been the, the direct function of our skill in forging effective channels of resistance. In resistance, we have been compelled to openly violate those laws which directly or indirectly buttress our oppression. But even containing our resistance within the orbit of legality, we have been labeled criminals and we become meticulously prosecuted by a racist legal apparatus. Naturally, individual as well as collective acts of resistance will prevail. I made that the present tense on purpose, but I'll read what she said, uh, prevailed. Um, anyway, never mind. Uh, racist oppression invades the lives of black people on an infinite variety of levels. Blacks are imprisoned in a world where our labor and toil hardly allow us to eke out a decent existence if we're able to find jobs at all. When the economy begins to falter, we are forever the first victims, always the most deeply wounded. When the economy is on its feet, we continue to live a depressed state. Unemployment is generally twice as high in the ghettos as it is in the country as a whole, and even higher for black women and youth. The unemployment rate among black youth has risen and skyrocketed to 30%. Now, if a third of America's white youth were without means of livelihood, we would either be in the thick of revolution or else under an iron rule of fascism. Substandard schools, medical care hardly fit for animals, overpriced, dilapidated housing, a welfare system based on the policy of skimpy, uh, skimpy concessions designed to degrade and divide. From Birmingham to Harlem to Watts, black ghettos are occupied, patrolled, and often attacked by massive deployment of police. The police, domestic caretakers of violence, are the oppressor's emissaries charged with the task of containing us within the boundaries of our oppression. The vicious cycle linking poverty, police courts, and prison is the integral element of the ghetto existence. Unlike mass groups of whites, the path which leads to jails and prisons is deeply rooted in the imposed patterns of black existence. For this very reason, an almost instinctive affinity bonds the mass of black people to political prisoners. For the black individual, contact with law enforcement judicial penal network directly or through the relatives is inevitable because he or she is black. For the activists be who become a political prisoner, the contact has its occurrence because he has lodged a protest in one form or another against the conditions 
which nails blacks in the orbit of their oppression. Historically, black people as a group has exhibited a greater potential for resistance than any other population. The ironclad rule over our communities, the institutional practice of genocide, the ideology of racism have performed a strictly performed a strictly and political, strictly a political as well as economic function. The capitalists have not only extracted super profits from unpaid labor of 15% of the American population with the aid of a superstructure of terror. This terror and more substantial forms of racism have further served to create a situation of resistance, even a revolution that would spread to the working class as a whole. Fascism is a process. Its growth and development are cancerous in nature. While today we are in the throes of, with the threat of fascism, may be primarily restricted to the use of law enforcement judicial penal apparatus to arrest overt and latent revolutionary trends among nationally oppressed people. Tomorrow, it may be the working class and eventually the moderate Democrats. Among the future symptoms of, among the future symptoms of fascist threat are official effects to curtail the power of organized labor such as the attack on the conservative construction workers and the trends toward reducing welfare aid. The struggle which made, the struggle which must be waged in the ranks of the working class is to constantly and openly engage in unreserved battle against entrenched racism. No potential victim should be without the knowledge that the greatest menace of racism and fascism is unity. And this was written in 1971, not 2018. I just want to make that clear. Welcome back to Indigo Radio. You're listening to 107.7 FM WVEW LP, Brattleboro, your community radio station. Um, so that was Dottie Morris, who read um, at the Brooks Memorial Library. She read Angela Davis um, in the Brattleboro Solidarity event, uh, World Voices of Working People's History. So um, let's take a break um, before we launch into another segment. Um, we'll be talking more about Diversity Day. Um, we have a couple of guests in um, the studio. Um, do you want to introduce them real quick? So sure. <clears throat> we have Michaela Sims here, who's the diversity coordinator of the I'm district. Not guest. <laughs> You're not a guest. <laughs> she's true. also a host, but today's <laughs> today she's. <laughs> um, and Robin Morgan's also here. Your children go to academy, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And she's um, was a instrumental in organizing the diversity day celebration as well. So thank you for joining us. Absolutely. And in a moment, we're going to be joined on uh, by call by Janaki Natarajan, who was the first diversity coordinator of the district 20 years ago. Yeah. And um, so we'll continue um, listening to Taina Asili and I La Banda Rebelde. Um, and so this next song is called Freedom, and it features Michael Reyes. Shut it down! The 
You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's community radio station. Uh, earlier in the show, you heard Dottie, uh, who is a professor at Keene State University, and or I guess it's Keene State College, 
and she read Angela Davis, and that was from our clips from Brattleboro Solidarity's Voices of Working People event on International Workers' Day. This segment of the show, we're going to be talking about an amazing, um, I guess, not, it's not just an event, it's uh, a culmination of many things, a diversity day, and it's really the work of the Diversity and Equity Committee throughout the year, as well as um, the support of the school district in making this happen. And the town. And the town, thank you. And we um, have on the air Janaki Natarajan. Can you hear us, Janaki? Great. So, Janaki, you were the first diversity coordinator of the BUHS district. And I was wondering, this started in 1998, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the context in which this position was created. Thank you very much for having me on, Becca, because, uh, and you're doing such wonderful work on this radio, so thank you for that very much indeed, all, all of the people who are doing it. Yeah, the history of the, of, uh, you know, the diversity program is probably really important given that it's lasted as long as it has and is continuing to strengthen. So it started, the process in a sense started in 1998 and established in 1999. Um, do you want to know a little bit about the history, the context of it? Yeah, that would be great. Well, it started, when I first started teaching, um, eighth and ninth grade um, in uh, Bravery Middle School under Mr. Patchouli and Joe Rivers was the vice principal. And most important also, Robert Peoples was a counselor there. And he had already started uh, at the behest of the children in, in many ways, uh, uh, an organization called AWARE. And the Linton family, which is a black family in town, had raised very serious concerns about what was happening to the young people in their family in the schools and how they were treated. But also, at, just at this time, a black doll was burnt in a fire, uh, in a homecoming fire. And, you know, the, the circumstances of it are not as important as the fact that it happened. And at the same time, it was clear that there was a lot of uh, the, the culture, if you like, and the language in the schools particularly in the high school and the middle school, was something that we all needed to work on. Um, and so that's how it started. And the great thing was that Mr. Sprague, who was the principal at that time, and Ms. Nelson, the superintendent, and the teachers, everyone was on board, and everybody wanted to try to do something, uh, not only about the students, but about ourselves as well. So the diversity program was started, and... Uh, I was the first coordinator, if you like. Now, the coordinator position has was then and has now increasingly become somebody who organizes programs, who is a catalyst for conversations, who teaches about diversity, who is an ombudsman, you know, if there are any um, kind of conflict, advocate, friend. So all of these uh, positions particularly teacher is part of that that work and um, the leadership you know since then and now with Lyle Holiday as a superintendent and the principals uh, you know and we saw this yesterday the culmination of the twin not a culmination I should say of the black 
Lives Matter flag being hoisted both in the middle school and the high school. It's just, it's just a very, very wonderful thing to have happened. But the history is more complicated. Um, I remember, for example, during that time, the custodial staff at the high school coming together because I had meetings with them as well, asking for teachers and students to follow them around for two or three days and see uh, what their work was like and what the graffiti was as well as... Uh, uh, as one student said, well, the custodial staff will pick up the paper. It doesn't matter if I throw it down. No, it does matter. It does matter. And so those conversations are part of the diversity conversations. It's about supremacy, about race, about gender. It's about work, work and labor, hierarchy, and so on. The, um, I must say that it's it's been what almost twenty years now. So one of the greatest things is that it has lasted as long as it has, and we have had since the beginning, twice a year, the diversity day in which every school, every every student is expected to participate. So anyway, uh, before I run on, maybe you have other questions. I just wanted to know why you think a position like this is important to have here in Brattleboro. Well, I must say I really appreciate both the board and the administrators for, you know, going through all kinds of hoops, administrative hoops, to save the position. Mm. And uh, and they saw, of course, that the community was very supportive of it. Um, this position is not somehow an add-on, but it's intrinsic embedded in the whole process of students learning not only about the world, but about themselves. So they take out the ideas in their heads and hold it to the light in these kinds of meetings you all have and say, where did I learn this from? Do I still want to have these ideas or do I want to change them? What do I want to do with them? And so thinking about thinking, which is what I always said those many years ago, and learning about learning is very important. And this one position is, given all the roles it plays, uh, very central to this task of learning, both in academic and standards kinds of ways, but also in the larger, uh, immense task of critical thinking. Thank you so much. I have to say that I had a student, I brought down some students from Springfield, Vermont, and they said to me as, as we got back to school that they have never walked into a school where they felt like it was so inclusive and welcoming of who they were. Mm. Um, and they were noting both the Black Lives Matter flag being raised, but also the all-gender bathrooms throughout mm. the high school and the middle school. I just want to say one thing, and that is that we should be very aware that there's a great deal of support, however difficult it is. I remember Mr. Sprague, the first uh, principal, oh, great, you know, he was talking about the difficulties of his family as a French-Canadian you know, when they came in here and so on. The support is crucial. The community support is crucial. Otherwise, it would not have lasted this long. But I think that where we have not done as well, and we began this, is embedding it in the teaching itself. 
uh, there's always, uh, even that time, people said, oh, is it appropriate for these children to learn about all the difficulties in the world? Yes, age appropriate has never been my problem. I've been able to teach both pre-K as well as, you know, because it's, it's children's experiences that one hooks into. And the teachers are the ones who build the architecture, the scaffolding for the teaching of difficult subjects, which is what life is also about. And the distinct task of the, which Michaela Sims performs so brilliantly um, is crucial to act as a, as I said, a catalyst to this kind of conversation. It's painful, it's angry-making, etc., etc., but so what? That's what learning is about. Absolutely. <laughs> it's on, yeah. Uh, and so, so I don't know if uh, Michaela or Robin want to comment on anything Janaki said, and we'll hear from you all more later on in the show, but if there's anything you want to add now. Janaki, I don't know if I'm worthy of such praise, but I will say <laughs> thank you that I've learned a lot from you, and in addition to the the scaffolding that you mentioned, I think there is a practice that has to take place. And doing things over and over and not thinking that once is enough. That's right. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, you know, the uh, there will always be mistakes of various sorts, but that doesn't matter. That's what our ancestors taught us. The What we know is because we got up and did it again and again, because we know that the objective that we have of a greater human community in this world is really what it's all about. And Robin, I'm so appreciative of your support. It's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> there was another board member called Robert Miller. In the very early days, you know, we had Howard Dean come, Bernie come, various people come, small and big. And Robert Miller was one of the most uh, incredible supports of that early time. So if it wasn't for a leadership support, we'd be having a harder struggle. We won't stop, but we'd have a harder struggle. Yeah, and I just wanted to take this moment, John Akiba, we still have you on the air, to um, thank everyone who's helped to make this possible. Um, Brattleboro schools are something that I think we should um, try to learn from throughout the state. And um, I asked my students, you know, we're gonna be meeting on Monday to take lessons and make a proposal for our school from what they learned from visiting Brattleboro during Diversity Day. So thank you all so much. Up and down the Connecticut River, yes, indeed. And I must say that one of the great things is when the principals become active participants, like uh, Mr. Herve and Mr. Gagnon, you know, they're just absolutely in the classrooms, you know, during these days and participating. And uh, Steve Perrin yesterday gave that talk with the flag raising. It was, it was very moving. Yeah, and I've been reading... And the students were great. Yeah, and I wasn't able to attend the middle school flag raising, but Keith Lyman also said some wonderful things in the Brattleboro Reformer article in support of the students and the student initiative that was taken in the middle school to get the flag raised. Yeah, the simplicity and the, and the kind of, the, the, you know, BAMS is one of my most favorite places, as you can imagine, because I taught there. 
and Mr. Lyman, you know, his sincerity and his kindness is just, is just very moving. So thank you so much. That was Janaki Natarajan, who was the um, catalyst for diversity work, one of the many catalysts for the diversity work that started 20 years ago in the Brattleboro School Districts. Thank you, thank you, thank you all. Power to you guys. Talk to you soon. Bye, Janaki. All and right. So I think we'll go to a quick song break. Nina, if you want to introduce the Absolutely. next song. So um, the next song is another song by Taina Asili. Um, she, uh, her and her band performed a song called War Cry um, at the Women's March um, on Washington, D.C. Um, this past year. So this is um, Taina Asili y la Banda Rebelde and War Cry. To bring you my war cry. This song is written in five languages. This is Zulu, Ochivambu, Kiswahili, Spanish, and English. And it's a song calling out that we may come together in justice, in healing, in freedom, in Arts Cafe, located at 113 Main Street in Brattleboro. Amy's offers European and classic pastries, artisan-made breads, cakes for all occasions, lunch, espresso drinks, and locally roasted coffees. Thank you, Amy's, for supporting Community Radio. Welcome back to WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM. You are listening to Indigo Radio. We are on every Sunday at noon 
Um, and we're a group of educators trying to learn more about the world. And Becca, who do we have in the studio today? So today we have our co-host, Michaela Sims, playing multiple roles today. (laughs) Um, She is the diversity coordinator, and I think the coordinator doesn't quite entail all of the work you do as a teacher, educator, and also uh, support for students in the district. And we also have Robin Morgan, who is a community member and has been um, instrumental in organizing the events of Diversity Day that happened on Friday and leading up to it. And she also has children in the academy schools. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. I was wondering if you all could start by just talking about um, what, to describing what happened this Friday, both in the high school and on Elliott Street. You want to start, Robin? Um, okay. <laughs> well, it was something that we didn't know was going to happen when we first started planning the event, the evening event for Diversity Day, which we started planning at the beginning of the school year. But it just so happened that in between that time and when the event happened, students came forward to ask for these Black Lives Matter flags to be raised on Diversity Day. So it ended up being a whole day long of public events and in-school events. So the morning was it started at 9 a.m. with the Black Lives Matter flag going up at the middle school. And all of the schools in Wyndham Southeast had some kind of expression of Diversity Day going on in their schools. At 11 o'clock, the flag went up at the high school. And then at 5, we had a big street party downtown featuring all of the work that students had done around the theme of solidarity and a bunch of community organizations and restaurants and businesses got in the mix and it was a good party. Yeah, and I think that the theme of solidarity was really carried out well throughout the district and certainly reflected in the raising of the, the flags. Um, because at the high school, about, I would say, over half the high school was outside, at least half minimum, and the whole middle school was outside um, to show their support. And it's so important, the work of solidarity in moving forward for justice together. Um, so it was an appropriate theme, and it was perfect for the time, which we didn't know. We yeah. picked it in, in September or whenever we did that. Um, so it's just amazing, and it was an, I don't know. I think that it was an amazing day and that everything was positive. People came out and also just all contributed to the positivity. And there was a little bit of rain, but nothing to keep us away. So it was great. And when you pick the theme solidarity, you pick it from the beginning of the year and schools throughout the district incorporated into um, their learning and the activities in the classroom and outside of the classroom. And um, I know there was a lot of amazing work that the students created. Could either of you talk about some of that that was on display, the work that the students made? I mean, I think that that is, that's our hope. I don't know that we have, we're all the way there where every school is emphasizing it it to the completely. However, um, there were projects from the middle school with really directly connected to solidarity and from other schools. And there were conversations among the faculty about what solidarity means. Um, The magic, I feel like, and it's not, I mean, mystical magic, but um, is 
holding two things at once and the complexity and simplicity of an idea. And that is what solidarity brings because it's very necessary and it could be as simple as holding hands or standing up for someone or as complex as looking at how we relate to people from, in, from other, land, other countries um, and how we are not our government policies. Um, so we can hold both of those simple, simple and complex together. And I think that's really important to do those things together. And at the high school level, I think that they were moving towards uh, incorporating it in the complex level. And also, speaking of that complexity with smaller kids, but in a different way, using different words. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah. And I'm just wondering, Robin, you have um, an 11-month-old and a 7-year-old and a 9-year-old. Uh, the 7- and 9-year-old are at Academy. And often this idea of age appropriateness comes up when we're talking about social justice and diversity work in the schools. And I'm wondering if you could comment on that, having young kids yourself. Well, it's been interesting, my journey in this area as a parent, because when my kids were really small, I had a very, I mean, every parent has a strong urge to like protect their innocence and their outlook on the world as like a good place. And I think as like a middle-class white person, it's, it feels easier to choose to shelter your child from the negative truths. But I started to feel really uncomfortable with that. And I, I didn't exactly know how, what is the age appropriate thing at this age. But once I started having conversations with my kids, which I was very hesitant about, because I was like, ah, what if I say it wrong, you know? But sometimes they bring it up and then you just, um, okay, it's happening. We're discussing this challenging topic. Like when my daughter was four and she learned at school on Martin Luther King Day, you know, about his life. And at the end of the picture book, it mentioned that he was assassinated. So that was what she wanted to talk about. So that was like, you know, jumping right into the frying pan. But the thing that I've come to realize is like issues like this are not something that's for older kids or adults. It's not like we can pretend the world's one way and then suddenly when the kid's 14, actually, okay, that was a lie. Here's how the world really is. I mean, it's just a ridiculous idea to, to, and I think that a lot of people of our generation, I'm 43, it did feel like that. It did feel like that when, when we grew up thinking, oh, white people came and settled in Columbus, the great discovering hero and and then all of a sudden, when I was out of college, I learned about like the true nature of genocide of Native Americans. And so it's just, why would we delay that learning when there's a way that you can start the conversation from as soon as the kid can understand language? And, you know, like my 11-month-old, for her, that means we read books that show all different kinds of people, which is not as easy as it sounds. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at books for little kids, the ones that aren't about animals, it's almost all about white people. You have to kind of go to the effort of making diverse materials for your kids to have in, the, in their experience. Yeah, I remember actually, it's so funny that you said you, when you're in college or after college, you learn the truth. I remember I taught a course at Keene State uh, social context of education, I think it was, and the students were angry. <laughs> yeah, and it was no. I was like, uh, they were like, why didn't people tell? It? They were just discovering for the first time, and in, in as at like twenty, yeah, and they were like, why didn't they tell us this? 
And some were so angry that they walked out, and others were, and I was actually surprised. I was like, um, how did you live on this earth 20 years and <laughs> yeah. not find out what happened to the right. indigenous people of this land? Like, then you wonder. But they didn't know. It was, it was yeah, amazing. I personally had that experience at 26, I think 25, 26, when I was a student of John Keys at SIT. And just the, um, being, being lied to, you almost don't then want to trust any teacher that you ever had, um, even though it was not necessarily, it was keeping facts out that mm -hmm. also becomes, the omission becomes part of a narrative that is fit false. Um, that was a lie. Yeah. And so I, I think a lot of, in my personal experience, and I went to a terrific high school that I love, so I'm not trying to like nag on my school, but I learned a lot of really interesting history about Europe and about America after 1776 and the Revolutionary War. But like the history of what happened leading up to that, I feel like was very shallowly understood by me. Okay, I, I, it's possible there was more talking about it that I spaced out on, but <laughs> it definitely wasn't given as many years in the curriculum as learning about the history of what European white guys did. Yeah. And I think about um, how if we have students in the school who are experiencing racism on a daily basis, that it's uh, the duty of teachers to make sure that all students understand why that is happening um, and the work of the of you, Michaela, and other people in the district to um, work with teachers from where they're at and also see this as an everyday ongoing conversations and not just a one time a year uh, event in which we celebrate diversity and solidarity, right. but that it's every interaction that we have with children on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot of foundational work that's happening right now. There's a lot of discussions about privilege and what that is. Um, but that is a great starting point. And so how do we get use that as like a jumping off point to really understand institutions as they have been created um, and how they influence? Because until we get to that point, uh, the disparities won't go away. And so it looking at myself and figuring out how I contribute to it is one process. How do I contribute to privileging some students on over others is one step. And then also how do I understand how the institution functions to do that as well mm -hmm. is another. Yeah. So I wanted to, um, the last segment of our show, talk specifically about the organizing that the BAMS middle schoolers did to um, harness the support of the school board and administration and teachers and other students in their school to raise the Black Lives Matter flag. If you could talk about that a little bit. Um, well, actually, it kind of started as a semi-casual conversation. One of the kids, and I don't remember which one of the students said, hey, you think that we can raise the Black Lives Matter flag like they did in Montpelier or Burlington? I think it was right after Burlington. So, And I said, sure, we can try. <laughs> Um, and so our next meeting, so there is an aware group at the middle school and there's one at the high school. Um, and so our next meeting, we started to talk about like what would we need to do, what did they do and what would we need to do in order to do that. Um, and so they stepped forward. It was a group of students that came together and wrote, um, a resolution to take to the, and then 
take to the principal and uh, I said, Keith, um, by the way, <laughs> these students are wanting to do this and could you come meet with them? So he came and met with them. And then from there, it was a pretty uh, fast process. Um, the board did voluntarily meet twice in April, which they usually don't do because it wasn't warned. And I don't know how all these bureaucratic systems work, but things have to be warned. Um, it's open meetings law. You have to, if there's anything on the agenda that's going to be voted on, it, the public has to be aware that that's happening so they can come to the meeting if they have strong feelings about it, which a lot of people did. Unfortunately, yes. they were all in strong favor of the flag. <laughs> they did, and they were. And Yeah, they were. People were like, I feel like people were holding bated breath, waiting for someone to say something negative, but they didn't. I think they saved that all for online, and we're fine with that. <laughs> say what you want online. They do. I um, was reading through the Brattleboro Reformer article that was published, um, and I have to say uh, props to the Brattleboro Reformer over the past week of publishing some really important pieces um, around solidarity and how do we see ourselves as all connected and part of a community of all people around the world. And one of the BAM students, Mia Satchel, talked- Maya. Maya, thank you. <laughs> I should have asked you before we got on air, huh? <laughs> Maya Satchel, um, I just wanted to read some of her quotes from that Reformer article. I go to school for an education. I don't go to school to be teased for the color of my skin. I don't go to school to be stared at during a lesson about slavery or immigration. I don't go to school to be told to go back to Mexico. Don't assume where I am from. Don't tell me to go back to somewhere I've never been. I was born in and raised in Vermont. I don't belong anywhere else. I belong here. And she went on to say that um, the Black Lives Matter flag is not meant to be divisive, and here's her quotes again, but a symbol of equality and unity. It represents all people of color. For the people wondering about what the flag will do, it will support us through all the racist incidents in our school. I know my school supports me and stands up with me. I want this flag to act like an educational tool for people who don't understand what we go through every day. I hope that one day we act like all lives matter. I hope that one day we don't have to put up a flag to feel a part of something. I hope one day all lives truly do matter and are treated equally. I hope raising the flag brings us one step closer. Wow. There go Maya. Maya was great and she, um, is one of many students who support the movement for raising the flag, mm -hmm. along with a lot of adults in the, both buildings. Um, and I think that the complexity of racism is there, but also the marginalization of other students, not based on race, based on other things, is also there. Um, and so how do we use this as a conversation starter and keep in our heads the re reality of solidarity and how we build it further to see it's connected and how our poor white students also can be rep represented by a Black Lives Matter flag. Is that true? And if so, how do we have that conversation with them? Because they too are marginalized in the system that we live in. I will also point out that Maya and the other kids from BAMS had initially mentioned in their proposal, although this was not the motion that was made and voted on by the board, but they had mentioned the idea of attaching other flags 
sort of as patches on the Black Lives Matter flag for other groups that they themselves were standing in solidarity with, um, like the Pride flag or um, do you remember what the other? Trans flag. Trans flag. And so these students and I think uh, the school and the school board are all really open to thinking about what can they do to give this same feeling of visible support to other groups of students who feel marginalized. So we have just about 30 seconds left, all but right, I wanted right. to ask you all, what do you hope moving forward as we end this year and move into another school year? I hope that uh, the Diversity Day grows and deepens into a longer and more widespread throughout the town celebration. Mm -hmm. I'll say that's my hope. <laughs> uh, I think that hopefully this will be a start of people more stepping out of their comfort zones more and um, into the muckiness and complexity of, and challenges of fighting for justice and that there is no simple answer. And so this, this, we're at a place where this is controversial still, but, but saying Columbus did not discover America was at one point was off the charge controversial and now it isn't, even though not everyone agrees. <laughs> and so how do we step into that place of and continually to, to um, step in a place of disagreement and have civil conversations following the lead of the children. Great. Great. Thank you so much. That's Michaela Sims, diversity coordinator and educator in the district. Gracias. And Robin Morgan, a community member and also part of the uh, diversity planning this year. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Indigo Thank Radio. So um, we have about uh, five minutes left, and we just want to make sure that everyone knows that we are on Facebook. Um, and so check us out, uh, Indigo Radio. Um, and um, also you can find, if you miss any of our shows, you can catch us on iTunes and on SoundCloud. You could find um, the link to the SoundCloud right on our Facebook page. So go ahead and find us there. Um, but um, next, we're going to talk about next week's show. Becca has a, a little PSA announcement from Broadway Solid dirty maybe and um going out we're going to um i'm going to play a video that was taken at the raising um of the black lives matter flag at the high school and um taina was singing there at the time so um do you want to tell us about next week's show? yeah i just want to say next week we're going to be talking about early the early childhood education in vermont and how do we care for all children and we'll be joined by Billy Slade and Kay Curtis, who are longtime um, early childhood educators in this area. Okay, great. Um, so um, here we go, Taina Asili at the raising of the um, Black Lives Matter flag.
baby, oh baby, oh mama, you know when you. 